Hey everyone, welcome to Christ is the Cure. Uh, we're continuing the summer guest series with uh, Blake White today, who's a pastor in um, Abilene, Texas. He has written uh, a good number of books on New Covenant theology, and so if you've been traveling with me down the Covenant theology uh, rabbit hole the last few months, then this is going to be a treat for you. And um, we're going to have him discuss New Covenant theology and uh, help us articulate it a little bit further. Um, would you care to introduce yourself, Blake? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Nick. Glad to be here. Uh, yeah, my name is Blake White. I'm in Abilene, pastor of Southside Baptist Church to Southern Baptist Church, and but has been committed to expositional preaching and elder leadership uh, for quite some time. So really, really glad to be here. Really healthy church. Uh, my wife's name's Alicia. We've been married 13 years, and I have five kiddos, ranging from 10 to two. So my house is a lot of fun. Yeah, I was gonna say that's a full house. Yeah, we love it, man. That's awesome. Um, and how how are you liking uh, uh, pastoring and teaching and writing books and all that? I love it, man. Yeah, I didn't grow up in the church. I was converted as a freshman in college uh, in Texas, um, Temple, Texas. And so mm -hmm. became curious. I, I did not care about learning anything until I was converted. But when I was converted, my mind was converted as well and just kind of became curious about understanding this God who saved me more. So it's kind of been a journey starting. I guess, see, what year was that? 2001. And so ended up being called to ministry through just studying the Word and got a few seminary degrees and uh, have, have loved it. Love what I do. As we record this, we're in self-quarantine mode because of COVID-19. So that's been a challenge in terms of ministry and what we can do. Been staring at a screen a lot. So that's less fulfilling than actually doing the work of ministry. But but love it. Always, always rewarding to spend concentrated time in the word and then bring it, bring it to bear for God's people. Absolutely. Yeah. The situation is definitely interesting, but I guess thank God for the internet given all the stuff we can do with it now. Yeah. Um, so jumping right into it, how would you, uh, define or start off talking about new covenant theology? Yeah. The simplest way is just Christ centered biblical theology. Now, Many want to would would agree with that though. So we would just want to argue that we think New Covenant theology is the most consistently Christ-centered way of putting the canon together. Really wanting to have biblical theology inform systematic theology, and there's various types of theologians that hold the New Covenant theology with different emphases and sometimes different labels being used. But going back to that first book, or no, it wasn't my first book, but sort of the main book, I think is what is New Covenant Theology. I threw that out to basically all the published writers and several non-published that I knew to say, hey, there's some variants on various issues, but is this the core of what we're saying? Give me your feedback. And that's where we landed on seven essentials of what New Covenant Theology is. And, you know, some of these seven covenant theologians would heartily amen. Some of these seven dispensationalists would heartily amen. And by the way, if you're brand new to the to the discussion, when we're talking about, and I'm not sure how much, Nick, you've covered this groundwork, but there's really three main biblical theological systems that everyone lands in, and there's variations within them, but dispensationalism, New Covenant theology, also called progressive covenantalism, and then covenant theology, and of course you've got your various trends of that. So within New Covenant, though, it is uh, there's some things of both that land, but taken as a whole, it's a unique system, and those seven are the fact that there's one plan of God centered in Jesus Christ, that the Old Testament should be interpreted in light of the New Testament, in light of Christ, uh, 
that the law is a unit that we are not under the law of Moses as new covenant believers, but under the law of Christ, that believers are indwelt by the Holy spirit and fully forgiven. So it's a believer's church system. And then finally that the uh, eschatological Israel is found in the church. So the church inherits the promises of Israel via union with Israel's Messiah. Okay. Um, so that, that, that has been one place that's been particularly uh, interesting and uh, it's kind of a running joke that we don't talk eschatology on the show because, you know, it's eschatology. But uh, in terms of Israel and Christ, is it? could you articulate just uh, briefly the New Covenant theology view on that? I, like, the church is in Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. How would you, exp- I guess, how would you explain that? Because that's always been one area that I can't wrap my head around in terms of New Covenant theology. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know if I don't know if there is one new covenant view on this issue. I'm, okay. I'm sure there's not, um, but in, it, we are defining ourselves sort of opposed to the other systems, right? In order to get clarity, and so obviously dispensationalism is going to have a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. That's sort of what makes one a dispensationalist. Uh, but even uh, we're so we're much more in common with covenant theology, but there is a difference in terms of nuance, especially Presbyterian. Uh, covenant theology. So we would say, if you look at the storyline of Scripture, uh, and they all go hand in hand, you look at these promises of the restoration of Israel found throughout the Old Testament prophets, uh, but also starting earlier, you know, even Deuteronomy 30, we see that coming to fulfillment in the first coming of Jesus. And so one way to describe the ministry of Jesus is that he came to gather scattered Israel around himself, right? And so you think about him getting 12 disciples and uh, think about John 1. Some of these first one and two chapters of the Gospels are really important with all that Old Testament promises being brought to bear. And John says that he came to his own, his own didn't receive him, but to those who did, to them he gave the right to become his children. who were born not of blood, not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh, but from God. So that that piece of union with Christ is really important for us. And uh, I don't mean to shamelessly plug, but I've got a book called God's Chosen People that unpacks this. That's a couple hundred pages to show that um, Jesus, Jesus is the key. You know, it all funnels down into him and then he opens it back up to whoever find themselves in him through faith. Probably the best summary verse is Galatians 3.29. If you are of Christ, then you are of the offspring of Abraham, heirs according to promise. So having that union with Christ is a vital piece Sometimes covenant theology would basically equate Israel and the church. Mm. I know that there are more careful exegetes that won't do that, but we want to say it's not Israel equals the church. It's Israel summed up in their Messiah, Ephesians 1, then broadened out to the church. Interesting. And Uh, with that, that also shows that it's a believing community once again, because Jesus, if you're in Jesus, you're a believer. No one is in Jesus who's not a believer. So that that by definition means that the New Covenant community is believers only, and that would be something that sets apart, you know, a believer's church view from a, a mixed, and most often would set apart Baptist from Presbyterians. Yeah, I was about to say that's pretty uh, that's a pretty uh, significant discussion. We we've been having baptism discussions lately uh, for a while now, so that's been coming up quite a bit. Um, and by the way, plug away uh, for our listeners. I'll put um, Blake's uh, author page from Amazon in the description so people can get to your works easier. Um, so talking a little bit about history, I, I've heard it said that new covenant theology is like a type of innovation that, you know, the history card comes out kind of often in various discussions. 
I guess, how would you respond to that notion that it's not historical and, and that it's just something that's just kind of popped out of thin air? Yeah, I hear that. I hear that often as well. So if you look at the other two systems, you know, dispensationalism was pretty much unheard of before Darby, <laughs> uh, you know, so not that long ago. And then, of course, I would argue that the covenant theology we now know is certainly older than than Darby, but, you know, 17th century. But if you look at exegesis, and that's what what I really care about is the exegesis of Scripture, um, value tradition, and, uh, you know, want to be have a humble posture towards it. But at the end of the day, sola scriptura, Scripture is the norming norm. And if you look at exegesis, it, you take some of the, it, like the church fathers, for example, and you look at the way Irenaeus and the apostolic preaching of the cross, how is he putting the canon together? Well, he's certainly not talking about dispensationalism and, you know, there those dispensations and the separation, but he's not talking about a covenant of grace or a covenant of works either. So I would argue that if you look at some of the church fathers like Irenaeus or even Justin Martyr and the way he's putting the canon together and some of his language about um, Jesus being the new lawgiver and those sorts of things, when he's dialoguing with Trifo the Jew or John Chrysostom and his commentaries, which are uh, surprisingly relevant and helpful, especially on Galatians. Galatians 3, John Chrysostom's really helpful, and he's putting it together in a way that we are putting together as New Covenant guys. Then, of course, Luther. Uh, Luther's hard to nail down because he's he's uh, he's Luther. <laughs> <laughs> but if you look at you know some of his teaching on the law, especially and the discontinuity uh, between what he would call law and gospel. You see some things there that don't fit within covenant theology, don't fit within dispensationalism. And then some of the evangelical Anabaptists. So the guys that were sparring with Zwingli, like a pilgrim Marpeck, you know, those guys were running for their lives from Rome and Protestants. So they didn't have a lot of time to write systematic theology, but some of those like Marpeck would see the newness of the new covenant in a believer's church. So you see, when they, they wouldn't call it this, but they're taking progressive revelation into account way before their time. So, you know, as a, as a label, New Covenant Theology, yeah, the label's new, but in terms of putting the canon together this way with Christ at the center and not being bound by the law of Moses, I would argue that it's as old as any of the systems. So ba- basically the, the same thing anyone else would argue, that the concepts are there, but the definitions or the terminology wasn't, essentially. Yeah, and I would push back on depending on again which party you know to talk about. Yeah, their their man made theological categories. You know, they're not they're not ancient either. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you talked briefly about Israel and the Church. Um, so we don't really need to go too much back into that. In fact, you mentioned the Westminster Confession that. But um, aside from that, what distinction would you say is between New Covenant theology and Westminster? And of course, you talked about mixed and not mixed. So. Aside from that, is there anything else that would be noteworthy in terms of the d- distinctions? Yeah, I think so. Let me let me preface it, though, just reminding us that this is an in-house debate. And man, I love Westminster brothers and sisters. Uh, I tried really hard. I wanted to be, as I was n- fresh, called to ministry and learning doctrine, I wanted to be in the PCA rather than the SBC, where I landed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I just couldn't get there exegetically. Uh, so I value, and man, I love Westminster Philly. Uh, I love the theologians and exegesis they produce. So I want to, I want to rush to affirm my love for, for these brothers and how much they get right. I love Cornelius Van Til. So I could go on and on, but the differences, and of course, keeping in mind, there's variations within covenant theology, even Westminster Cali versus Westminster Philly. So it's hard to paint with too broad a brush. 
But let me mention five. Number one would be uh, the structure of the Bible. So again, covenant theology has these theological covenants rather than exegetically derived covenants like the covenant of works, covenant of redemption, covenant of grace that we don't find in in the Bible. And so they're going to structure the Bible based upon based upon those extra biblical covenants and new covenant the- theology is not going to do that. It's going to want to take each covenant on its own that has lots of continuity, but some discontinuity as well. So that'd be number one, structure of the Bible. Number two in that kind of a really a sub point to that is we're going to s- see less continuity than they will. If you have a covenant of grace that spans every covenant, it tends to flatten them out. And we see in places like Jeremiah 31, a pretty strong discontinuity between the old covenant and the new covenant. Jeremiah says it will not be like the one I made before. And so we see more discontinuity between the old covenant and new covenant. Uh, And then we already mentioned it, but third would be the nature of the new covenant community. We see that uh, Jesus is the key. And so that we are only in the people of God based upon union with Christ, which comes by faith. So, Again, it's a believer's church, and we would go. Jeremiah 31 is a big passage for us where in the new covenant, all will know the Lord. Absolutely. Uh, to use Ezekiel's language, all will have the Spirit. And so that's a big difference on the nature of the covenant community. It's a believer's church, not a believer's and their seed or unbelievers. Um, fourth would be related to that, that union with Christ is the key between Israel and the church. And then a big one, of course, as you mentioned, is, uh, is the law. You know, we they would see the Decalogue as the eternal moral law of God, and we would say that we're not under the law of Moses anymore. Now, be quick to say that nine of the ten of the Decalogue are clearly affirmed and repeated in the New Testament. The big one is the Sabbath commandment. So we're going to have the biggest disagreements on the Sabbath. I've just finished a small book on the Sabbath, but I don't think it'll be out anytime soon. But was happy to finally be able to put some sustained attention to that that one since it is a big sticking point between New Covenant theology and both Westminster and 1689 Covenant theology. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess, would you mind describing that distinction for uh, listeners who may not know what it is, essentially? I mean, you pointed out that uh, one view holds, you know, uh, the Mosaic Law is, or the Decalogue specifically, is the eternal moral law of God. Um, And so I guess in contrast to New New Covenant theology, what is the view of the law or um, of the Sabbath in this particular instance? Yeah, so to speak of the Sabbath, um, you know, if the Decalogue is the heart of the Old Covenant, which it is, uh, and it, but if it's the eternal moral law of God, which we don't agree that it is, uh, it becomes a real issue, right? Because therefore, every New Covenant Christian is bound to obey the Sabbath as given in the Decalogue, which part of that commandment is to work six days. It's not an optional suggestion. Sometimes it's treated that way practically. Yeah. But part of the commandment is to work six days. Uh, the other part of it, it is, sat- it is Saturday. And so there is no transfer theology in the Bible. Now that came much later to transfer it from Saturday to Sunday. Uh, so that's another issue, another conversation. But the biggest thing is, will we bind the consciences of God's people with a commandment that is clearly to us been fulfilled in Christ? And so the key passages that that we will pound again and again and again that we just humbly don't think our covenant brothers have done justice to are uh, Galatians 4, 8 to 10, 
um, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, where Paul explicitly says, don't let anyone judge you based upon the Sabbath, which was a shadow of what was to come. And then Hebrews 3 and 4, where we see rest, this Sabbath rest is ultimately pointing to Christ. And do we have it fully yet? No. But do we do, do, we do have it in reality? Yes. Uh, and then Matthew 11, Matthew 12, other places. So the biggest thing for us is we see in the New Testament pretty clearly that the Sabbath pointed toward Sabbath rest in Christ. And so to, we're no longer bound then to that day, which Galatians 4 uh, has pretty strong warning about. So out of curiosity from there, in praxis, whenever you know we observe the Lord's Day, how do you see that in relation to what could or would have been the Sabbath? Or how do you see you know, take a day's rest and cause that kind of opens up a door of like, well, so do we take a day of rest or is it just a continual abiding? Um, I guess, how would you clarify the relationship in that sense? If that makes sense, hopefully. Yeah. Well, that's where, to be honest, I get a little irritated. I get called a lot oftentimes by covenant guys an antinomian and <laughs> new, you know, new covenant guys have been called antinomian often because, you know, we're supposedly against the law of God by which they mean the Decalogue. But on this issue, man, we live exactly the same. And that's kind of an inconsistency I often see, often, 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 because I go here often and ask about this question. Tell me how you live on a Sunday or how does your family or how does your wife live on a Sunday? Well, for being consistent, and there were streams, uh, you know, obviously think of the Puritans that would be consistent. But, you know, oftentimes the language of the covenant confession, excuse me, language of the confession is pretty clear on works of employment and enjoyment, you know, and so guys who will go out to eat and cause others to work, or if, if they'll prepare meals on Sunday, or if they'll mow the grass on Sunday, or if they'll watch NFLs on Sunday, uh, that is inconsistent with what the confession says. So that, that can be a point where I'm like, okay, on ex exegetically, you call me this, but then we look just the same. I don't know of a single covenant theology brother or sister who has disciplined somebody for breaking the Sabbath. Yet on their system, it is of the same moral weight as murder. It's one of the 10, right? Yeah. Which you never find. You never find that sort of seriousness being taken. And again, part of me is glad. I'm glad for the inconsistency because I don't think we ought to be binding God's people with the Sabbath. Now, what will often happen is if it's a transfer, uh, they'll say, well, Sunday is the Lord's Day, which I believe Sunday is the Lord's Day, revelation based on the, based on the resurrection. That's a far cry from saying, the Sabbath has been transferred. So should we gather on Sunday? I think so. Do we have to? Well, if there's circumstances which uh, keep you from doing that, I don't think that's a sin. You look in Corinth, they, they didn't gather on Sunday morning. They gathered in the evening, um, you know, because they had to work. The issue in 1 Corinthians 11. But in general, should we uh, value the Lord's Day? Absolutely. Yes. Prioritize it. Uh, if you can, gather if a church can, well, I think we ought to gather on Sunday morning or at least Sunday in honor of the resurrection. But can we go out to eat? Can we cook a meal? Can we mow the grass? I think I think we can. Now, there's another principle, and you see kind of a revival of, of Sabbath literature that's totally non-theological. Um, that's basically just reacting to our, our pace of culture, to where we're always on and everybody's overworked and uh, I'm all for the revival of that. I wouldn't call it Sabbath, though. I would just call it rest. I think God cares about us being uh, wise with our body and with our time. But I think when we begin those conversations, we're leaving what the Bible's talking about with Sabbath. Even worship. In the, in the Old Covenant, Sabbath is not about worship. It's about rest from work, ceasing from work. 
That's a good point, actually. I haven't thought about that connection prior. But I think you, you raised some uh, interesting points about, you know, the consistency of using the Decalogue and the Sabbath. I think that's a great point to bring up. So you mentioned being called an antinomian, and I've seen this around almost most places that I've looked, you know, into the subject. Um, how would you further explain that you're not antinomian? Because we'll get into a little bit further, but in terms of morality and objective morality, if you remove the Decalogue, it's kind of seen like, well, you removed all of our objective morality, so there's no law, right? Um, I guess, how would you address that situation in particular? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. And and to be honest, there are probably those out there, I couldn't tell you names, but probably those out there that are antinomian, legit antinomian, uh, cheap grace, easy believism type uh, guys that use New Covenant theology to that end. Yeah. Uh, would not be at all surprised by that. But for us... Uh, we take, and this is one of one of the emphases. We, we take the New Testament very, very seriously, the teaching of Jesus and uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And there are some two thousand imperatives in the New Testament. So you know, if you look at the Decalogue, you got ten. Look at even the Old Covenant, you got six hundred thirteen. Well, the New Testament is filled with imperatives, filled with commands. It's just we look to Christ first and foremost, listen to Him. Deuteronomy eighteen tells us as He would come, uh, not to Moses. One of our key passages, one of our ones we turn to again and again is 1 Corinthians 9. If listeners have a Bible, it would be good to open it. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, and Paul's talking about his mission, but in it we learn part of this theology of the law. He says, he's free from all. I made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law... I became as one under the law. I think he's just talking about Jews again. And he gives this really important parenthetical com comment. Though not being myself under the law. I hear the Apostle Paul saying he's not under the law. That I might win those under the law. Verse 21. To those outside the law, speaking of Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. And then another important parenthetical comment. Not being outside the law of God, but in Amos Christ too, under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So you have a fascinating verse here where you have Paul saying he's kind of in a third position. He's not under the law as a Jew would be. He's not outside the law as a pagan Gentile would be, but he is under the law of God, which is the law of Christ. And so in this verse, he makes the distinction between the law, meaning the Jewish law. I think every credible New Testament scholar sees that here as Namos being the old covenant law. He says, I'm not under that law, but I am not outside the law of God. But now in this new covenant era, what that means is being under the authority of Christ. Okay. Um, so one clarifying question for that, that was a great explanation. Thank you. Um, in terms of say you're talking to an unbeliever by what law, I guess, or by what standard are they judged by that we need to call them to repentance? Is it the law of Christ that he's restated in the New Testament, or like where do we go back for that? Yeah, so I think if you use the New Testament as your model, how do, how do they, what do they, how, what is their evangelistic method? Book of Acts is really good here, and the call is to repent and believe in Jesus. Yeah. So the issue is, is unbelief. They're not submitting to the king. Now, having said that, uh, sometimes people say, well, you could, you know, are you familiar with Way of the Master and their sort of uh, evangelistic method? Yeah, using the Decalogue. I, I was thinking about that. Yeah. 
Yeah, New Covenant guys get often asked, well, is that legitimate? Well, I think, I, sure, I think it's legitimate. I think you need to have, uh, and you could use a whole host of things. In our culture, increasingly, I think Tim Keller's on to something, increasingly uh, something that might be more effective in our culture than going to, say, the Ten Commandments or other commandments is the whole issue of idolatry, which mm-hmm. we find, obviously, in Romans 1, Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, because Western people increasingly just don't have categories for sin and guilt. So if you just say, you know, you're breaking God's commands, increasingly people don't care about that. They need to, and part of our job is to get them there. But if you're looking at the the sermons, evangelistic sermons in the book of Acts, it's repent and believe in Jesus, and they're judged on that. But uh, he also speaks in Romans 1 of this demand. The word is demand. Uh, I think it's Dikaioma, same one used in Romans 8, 3 or 4. And so there is this universal demand that I think different theologians have used different language to demonstrate it. Or you could even say his righteousness that becomes encoded in different ways. Encoded in one way pre-law, encoded in another way with the law of Moses, and then encoded, enshrined in another way in the New Covenant. So in terms of his character, his character doesn't change, but what he demands does change over time. You look at you know divorce and remarriage and David. Uh, that's another clear example where God's demand has changed. Moses had a concession because of your hardness of heart, he says, about divorce and remarriage. And then the Sabbath would be a clear one. Then obviously you have the food laws and the and the uh, ceremonial laws. That's another piece you know we didn't talk about, but New Covenant theology doesn't see any exegetical basis for a tripart division in the law. We see the law as a unit basically everywhere, starting with its being given in Exodus and then other passages, you just don't find exegetical warrant for that. I think the first one to do that was Aquinas, and then, of course, Calvin popularized it. Yeah, actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to bring it up at some point, but you summed up that uh, that pretty well. Um, so within within the, the different systems, particularly covenant theology, um, you usually have an idea of the covenant of grace, right? You know, the overarching covenant of grace with different administrations in the Westminster, and then you have— the London Baptist, where the covenant of grace is kind of revealed and then it's uh, seen in Christ. What is the new covenant theology position on the covenant of grace? Um, yeah, I guess that's how I would summarize that question. <laughs> yeah, we would just see you no, know, we don't see that phrase in scripture. And so we want to, we want to try where possible. And I think the vast majority of times it is possible to stick with the language of scripture. Mm. And so we don't see language of a covenant of grace. And again, the danger uh, some some try to remain faithful, but the danger when you have one overarching covenant is is each covenant can lose its distinctiveness. And in Scripture, you find covenants plural, right? Ephesians two twelve, Romans nine, covenants is plural. It's fascinating. I was doing some work on Ephesians two two, and I believe it was Charles Hodge. I hate to misquote him, but I'm ninety percent sure it was Charles Hodge. In the text, it's plural covenants, and in his commentary, he translated as singular covenant interesting so it is theology and so if you look at those biblical covenants whether it be you know whichever one uh, there is a lot of continuity and clearly they're building upon one another but there's also discontinuity and we don't want to flatten those out and where the rubber really meets the road is the difference between the new covenant and old covenant the new covenant is not just a renewed covenant of grace it is radically new jesus christ and the gift of the spirit change the people and so that's the biggest problem i think a lot of Guys will try to hang on to the covenant of grace and, and make it equate the new covenant. Um, I just, we want to just lean on letting biblical theology form our systematic theology so we just don't see the usefulness of the category. 
Right. When we use language, that's where that first point, there's one plan of God centered in Jesus Christ. That's coming out of Ephesians 1, where God's plan and his purpose is to unite all things in Christ. Right. We prefer purpose plan centered in Christ. Okay. Um, so with that said, I guess, how would you articulate uh, the covenant made to Abraham? Um, because that's kind of where everything gets more complex. And so perhaps if you wouldn't mind briefly touching on how y'all view, or at least how you view it. I don't know if that one, if that particular uh, is monolithic amongst New Covenant theology or anything like that. Yeah, I think it probably is. Uh, I've got a little book called The Abrahamic Promises in the book of Galatians, because Galatians is so important here. Galatians 3, Galatians 3, the book of Hebrews, those are some really important passages for New Covenant theology. In fact, when I was doing work for this, this Sabbath book, you look at who are the main players of covenant theology in the last you know, 50 to 100 years, and John Murray's name is going to be up there. Now, he's more of your monocovenantal strand in Philly than your Cali guys. But you know he's, he's, he's a big player in the literature. And this was a critique by, uh, I think it was Gordon, can't remember, it was a critique by another covenant theology guy. But the critique was that John Murray never so much, I think that language was, wrote so much as wrote a paragraph. It was striking to me on Galatians three. Hmm. And so if you're talking about covenantal relations, Galatians three needs to be the first place you go. <laughs> yeah. And, and there he shows us there's clear discontinuity between the Abrahamic covenant and the old covenant. And there's more continuity between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. And you could just summarize it as a, what's the difference? Well, the difference is God says in Abrahamic and new, I will, and in the old covenant, he says, if you, right. All the stipulations. Yeah. The, yeah. God's going to make one happen. The other one is up to the people and the people in the old covenant didn't have to, didn't have the power to obey. They didn't have the Holy spirit. John Reesinger says they didn't have batteries included. Well, the new covenant comes with batteries. <laughs> so we're able then to obey and be faithful. Unlike Israel of old. And, and when you talk about the offspring of Abraham, you can't just leave it there. John Reesinger has got a book called Abraham's four seeds, which I think is one of the first ones uh, people ought to consult if they're curious. The subtitle is A Critical Examination of the Presuppositions of Covenant Theology and Dispensationalism. Hmm. And he talks about when we talk about the offspring of Abraham, you can't just leave it there. You've got to talk about which which seed, which offspring, because you have the natural offspring. Then you have the natural but special offspring. You know, you have that clear delineation with uh, Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael. So which one? So not you got your natural, then you've got your natural but special, and then you've got your Christological. That's Galatians 3.16. Who is the offspring of Abraham? It's singular. It's Jesus. And then you have the, the more corporate. So that's Galatians 3.16. It's Jesus. Well, in 3.26 to 29, just a few verses later, he says the offspring of Abraham is the church. Is he being inconsistent? No. He's just a wise reader of Scripture, and he sees that corporate personality of Christ he is the singular seed of Abraham, but he opens it up. And those who are by faith united him become offspring of Abraham. So it's a, the offspring has a fourfold nature to it. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense too. Whenever you think about the way that it's, uh, it's all laid out, especially in terms of, like you said, Galatians three, Galatians three is a pretty, uh, pretty heavy chapter. Um, so I guess if you could preemptively clear up, um, any additional misrepresentations or misunderstandings regarding this view? Uh, we talked about antinomianism. We talked about 
Um, you know, you talked about some people will use New Covenant theology to, to kind of push that, and which, I mean, every branch is going to have their things. Um, but if there was any type of misrepresentations or misunderstandings that you come across that you could correct preemptively, what would you pick? Yeah, I think we covered, I think we covered the, what I consider the most important ones. One thing I heard maybe a year ago, it was a covenant, it was a Baptist covenant theologian and we haven't talked much, but obviously there's really big differences between Presbyterian covenant theology and Baptist covenant theology. Yeah. But, uh, but this guy who ought to know better, he, he said that new covenant theology is nothing more than hyper dispensationalism. And, uh, you know, that's just a straw man, uh, especially when you begin to look at what we're saying, there's, pretty clear differences and distinctions. I think that's just a way of, you know, wiping us aside without taking seriously what we said. So, yeah, I've actually heard that before. Is, is there a particular motivator behind that type of assertion? Because I don't under, particularly understand like why it would be applied to you guys. Probably, um, probably that we emphasize discontinuity. Hmm. And because they obviously, you know, they chop up the Bible with their, you know, especially the early on when they had the dispensations that basically were, there was no relationship between one and the next. And that's where the progressive dispensationalists have, I think, come, uh, come the right direction to see there is, there is overlap between their dispensations, but still they're going to emphasize discontinuity between old and new. And so again, we don't talk about dispensations. We talk about covenants and we emphasize discontinuity between the old covenant and new covenant. And so my guess is that's the main reason. Uh, and then actually on the law, uh, we're pretty similar. Dispensationalists don't see the Decalogue as the eternal moral law of God. They don't see any exegetical basis for the tripart distinction for the most part. So our view of the law would be pretty similar to a, you know, a standard evangelical dispensationalist, a, a newer one. Yeah. So that, that might be part of it. Another thing I'd say just with anybody is you're looking, looking at any of these systems, you're always going to find variations within systems, but you're also going to find various radical views as well. And so stick with the, with the published stuff, stuff gets published for a reason. So when you're, uh, when you're looking at anything, I would, I would encourage that. I remember when I was taking my first senior pastorate, I had written some books and one of our members saw that it was advocating new covenant theology and, and had Googled it and found all kinds of stuff. The most important of which was, well, I read that new covenant theology doesn't believe in hell. <laughs> I don't even know where she got that, but that's just an example of, you're probably going to find all kinds of radical stuff out there on the internet, but things are not published for a reason. And some things do get published for a reason. Yeah, certainly it takes discernment to navigate the internet most times. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned a lot of resources, and um, you know, you said the four seeds of Abraham uh, would be one of the top ones. So I guess if someone was wanting to read up more on the subject, that they just want to pile on like a stack of books, what would be the first, you know, a couple that you would recommend? Um, maybe in addition to the four seeds of Abraham. Yeah, yeah, I'm probably the best place again. Uh, self-promoting here, but that little book, it's just so short. It's, I don't even know, 60 pages, probably what is new covenant theology. You know, I wrote that for just a very, 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 very basic intro. Uh, And then of course, four seeds. And then there's an edited book. uh, I think it's B and H called progressive B and H publishing called progressive covenantalism has some really good essays in there from uh, some solid scholars. The big daddy is kingdom through covenant. 
which is by Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam. That is large and heavy going, lots of exegesis, lots of Hebrew exegesis especially. Um, there's a five views on the law book by Zondervan, and Douglas Moo's entry is fantastic. At the time, he called it a modified Lutheran view. Um, since then, I've heard, at least in one conference, he called it a New Covenant theology view. Uh, and it, it would be where most New Covenant theology guys land, uh, five views of the law. I think you can find that on his website for free if you fish around. Oh. Uh, really, anything Moo has written on the law is really good. Jason Meyer, who's now the preaching pastor at Bethlehem, has a really good book called The End of the Law. Uh, it's actually his dissertation, so it's also heavy going, but really solid. Um, Craig, uh, what's his name? Blomberg. Blomberg has an entry in the Four Views on the Sabbath book that is uh, what we're saying. Again, I don't know if he uses the label, but his view would be real similar to our view. Um, D.A. Carson has a edit a book on the Sabbath, which is really good. In many ways, the Sabbath is the issue. It's where the rubber meets the road between New Covenant and both strands of covenant theology. So I'd recommend those. And then any any commentary by Carson or Moo or Schreiner, and go to those commentaries and go to these key texts that deal with discontinuity, continuity, law, and uh, you'll be you'll be guided faithfully in in my opinion. So um I guess this is kind of just an off the cuff question. Do they does you know Douglas Moo and Carson? They tend to fall into New Covenant theology then. Yeah, yeah. So Moo, like I mentioned, he did a conference in the UK and he called it New Covenant theology. And uh, his exegesis again. He's got a commentary on Galatians. He's got obviously his Romans commentary. It's a whopper. Uh, yeah, yeah, but so good. Those key passages: Romans two, Romans six, fourteen, Romans seven. Uh, he's going to be really helpful. Carson, the same. Um, Carson. Just did a festriff for uh, Shriner, and he did the chapter on New Covenant theology. And uh, I don't think Carson loves the label or loves any labels for that matter. But <laughs> if you look at his work on Matthew five seventeen, or um, some of his New Testament use of the Old Testament, uh, any of those key passages, Carson's going to be right where we are. And then Shriner as well. And Shriner has used the label before. I think he now uses progressive covenantalism. And Shriner has a book called Forty Questions on the Law. Uh, honestly, anything Schreiner has written is going to be great. And then I love, I mentioned, I love the exegesis of the Westminster Philly guys. So you take guys like Poitras and Gaffin and Beale, um, Frank Thielman, that with the text are really, really solid. It seems like it betrays their confession. Yeah. Uh, but with the text, their hermeneutic is real similar to our hermeneutic in terms of being Christ-centered. I just don't know that they get there quite as consistently in two areas. Number one, the Sabbath, and number two, the nature of the New Covenant community. Yeah, I've kind of noticed that too. I, I mean, even whenever I was doing research for baptism, I found that, you know, Calvin's, you know, definition of baptism against Rome and in the Institutes was uh, kind of contrary to his own view on it later on. And it's like, how does, how does he manage that? But that's just one of those things. Uh, that was very resourceful. I think that's going to give, well, it's going to give me a lot of things to look at too. Um, I appreciate that. Um, before we completely close out, are there any closing thoughts you want to throw out there? Yeah, well, I just want to re reiterate my, uh, my love for these, these other camps. You know, you will never find a liberal dispensationalist. You know, <laughs> they, they love the Bible and they've always taken it seriously. So though we land on different spots, uh, Lots. Of, I'm in Texas. You're in Texas. So Dallas and the the, faith, the faithfulness of so many expositors that came out of Dallas, uh, and then on the other side too, just the God centered worldview of 
the Westminster tradition I'm so thankful for. Uh, we just we just come out to different places. Some of it matters practically, you know, at the local church level, especially when you're talking about baptism. And so these are important important areas to be talking through. I feel like the New Testament deals with discontinuity, continuity on every other page. So it's something we want to work through, and we want to always be reviewing and renewing our our views in light of Scripture and letting the confessions inform us. But at the end of the day, letting Scripture have the last word. And I think when we do that, we see Christ. Uh, is the the culmination of the laws Romans ten four puts it? Yeah, I'm I'm glad that you emphasized that you know the the unity um, you know in essentials and it's true. I mean, you read a book, it's most likely written by a Presbyterian, so it's just yeah. one of those things. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was great having you on. And again, for everyone listening, this is Blake White, and I'll put his Amazon link in the, the description. And I'll try to make a list of some of the resources he uh, mentioned here. And thank you again. Thank you.